Rush Shields is an icon of Irish rock, a forefather even. Long before Thin Lizzy and the Horselips and U2, his band Skid Row were blazing a trail with their blues-infused rock. They were ahead of their time doing Led Zeppelin before Led Zeppelin. Brush has been a mentor and a friend to Phil Linnett. Uh, he has had a vastly successful career as a musician. He is and remains talented, eclectic, spiritual and intriguing. Brush Shields, you are very welcome. Overwhelmed. <laughs> you got to give a good. You got to give a good intro if you want to get anywhere. Well, you know, it's crystal the hubris, but I'm still overwhelmed. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, hopefully you won't be underwhelmed uh, as as we go along. So, do you? Uh, you are uh, a, a, a sort of an icon of Irish uh, rock music. Do you kind of see yourself in in that way? Because you'd be justified in thinking that. I'm kind of. A, I'm an elder lemon. Mm. And I, I kind of, uh, I, I sit around saying, I, you know, uh, I've been playing for 50 years and I haven't improved and I'm still as good as anybody because the standards are so low. So you'd still be saying like, you know, there was nothing as, they were the days sort of the 60s and the early 70s, rock has never been as good since. And guys and ladies of a certain age would all say, right, you know, so... I represent people of a certain age. You mm. reckon, uh, it's not as good as it used to be, but as a guy says, it's not as bad as it was, but it's not as good as it used to be. You know, that sort of stuff. So I, I represent kind of a frame of mind with a lot of people. And then I play in a particular way to make a living, which I would call an acceptable level of mediocrity, which is, but then guys of a certain age and ladies of a certain age all over the world at some stage, they have to... Uh, taste of people know and that that type of thing you know, so. yeah so you're adaptable and and kind of uh, a good survivor in that way well, yeah, as well you have to make a living yeah yeah and, and you've got a family as well yeah so. I, like you know i came back from england in like around 73 tried something didn't work i had to go on the dole so that it's a real as guys it's, it's a rude awakening but you when you're on the dole you would play things that you wouldn't usually play if you weren't <laughs> yeah. you were going very well <laughs> yeah would well, it cost money to have a, a certain kind of uh, notions that's let's put it that way well the, the jazz musician where there's a lot of them around they have to pay to play yeah if they're going to play it's a harder room they just try and get a few in this that, that so the better you play the further you get away from whatever people want play you know it's like play something we all know which is that's the name of the game so even the blues bands still rock me, baby, and Keith or Highway. Mm. They still have to play the blues programs. The jazz guys, they have to play the standards. They can't be playing the bebop, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's like that, really. So you started uh, with Skid Row about 1967. That's right, 67. And what I'm really sort of intrigued by is, is the idea that you don't sound remotely Irish. That album, 34 Hours, it's a real infusion. I mean, I know Gary Moore was playing oh, at that yeah, stage, yeah. but uh, it was a... No it, bridge, man. It, it, has a, it has a kind of a, 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 a very much a Hendrix blues... Uh, well, it would be that, yeah. yeah. Where, and it also kind of meets English folk as well, in part. Well, yeah, we would. You know, we liked a lot of the early English folk. Plus, we used to hang out in Slattery's a lot where the folk scene was gigantic you know and they'd be doing the uh unaccompanied stuff you know the, the thinking in the ear job and a bit of Pe meets peggy seager kind of and uh working class or the left wing you know it was all that 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 was all in that was kind of all, all in there and then i would uh you know like around there was a film out called jazz on a summer's day, the Newport Jazz Festival, 1956. And I'm sitting in the Cabaret Grand Picture House, about three people there in the afternoon. And all these great jazz musicians, Duke Elton, Lionel Hampton. Oh, unbelievable. But then this guy came on, Chuck Berry, playing Sweet Little Sixteen, and that kind of, that was it then. After that, I'm ready to play the guitar. You yeah. know, it's just very interesting listening to it. As I say, it, it, it has such a kind of a, a worldly sense to it. Uh, and I find that intriguing because there's, there's very few other Irish bands who've ever actually done that. Well, they, there's a track on there called Love Story Part 1-2, mm. 
something like that. I wrote that and Gary said, can I sing? I said, go ahead. But till this day, most aficionados of the cultivated throwaway lick will play that particular track and say, there's never been an Irish band that done that, mm. you know, which there hasn't. There was other things we'd done they, they hadn't done either. Like we were doing the country stuff. Well, we were the first rock band to do the country and the very heavy. So we were going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. But we've seen, I'd come out with, you know, the start of the modern sounds in country and western. It was a Ray Charles album produced by Quincy Jones. And that was one of my biggest influences, along with uh, Oscar Peterson, Trio's Night Train, and Dave Brubeck's Take Five album. And he had another album called Time Further Out, where they'd done all the different time signatures. So I was going from, like, take these chains from my heart to playing it in Take Five. Take these, boom, but them, you know. But we'd have a very country meets... Bob Dylan meets the Beatles, meets the Stones, meets the Shadows. So you, you know. were very musically literate from a young age. Yeah. Then okay. I loved it. You know, loved it all. So you weren't just three chords in the truth kind of kind of. Well, vibe. I, I, I <laughs> you know, you get me on the you get me on the particular night. Like I'll, I'll do it, you know, one, two, or three chords. Like somebody, I'm a, it depends on who I'm with. Who I'm with. Yeah. Like I'll do the rebel ballad some nights yeah. all night. You know. We, we, we lived on the Fisborough Road beside, opposite John Davies, but beside the Red Windmill. And we had no radio. But every night in those days, after the pubs had closed, the lads had come out singing, and the ladies, and for another two hours. And I think the first song I learned was, Heart of my heart, heart of my heart, I love that melody. Then I got hear me dad singing at John Davies, he's outside John Davies over there. And he'd be coming in and he'd be like, My only son was shot in Dublin, like, and it'd be through the nose, kind of, My only son. Yeah, everybody had to stay fairly quiet. <laughs> stay quiet, stay quiet, though. You know, that was the. We're all going, stay quiet, you know, he's giving her everything. And then you get to Kevin Barry, always, you yeah. know, always Kevin Barry. And, and my dad be pointing down the road while he was singing it towards where he was picked up in Broadstone. Yeah. Under the bread man in his jersey. That's <laughs> right, his Belvedere rugby jersey. That's, that's right, yeah. So, when you'd be singing, they'd be pointing. You don't want to be very careful to keep a straight face, like it's sound interesting. But, uh, so, between this, that, and the other, you know, you'd have a, you'd have a, you'd have a fair amount of songs that you could sort of dip into. Like, and so, um, obviously, Gary Moore was, was part oh, of it. Great, made, great. He made all the, all the difference. A guitar player, and, yeah. and even even then, he sounds very f right on it, right into. Well, it. He's, he, when when he arrived, he was fifteen years old, mm. and he's on that album, fifteen, sixteen. And we have to be honest: if he wasn't on them, we mightn't have got we mightn't have gotten half the interest. Mm. But when he left the band, he immediately was playing with. He's talking about the Beatles. He took over from Eric Clapton, playing the George Harrison, my guitar gently weeps on the live shows. Huh? You know, so he played with everybody after that. After he, he had her off, including they tried to do get him in with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker to do another cream. So he was playing with the two of them. So they tried to really they seen him as the next Eric Clapton, but it, it didn't work out for him that till years later he got together with fellow again and they uh, done the Parisian walkways. Mm. And if anybody is interested, have a listen to. Santana, nineteen seventy six, Europe. <laughs> Does he play on that? No, but it's fairly similar. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for influence, what what might influence? Uh, Parisian walkways. Okay. If you have a listen to Santana's Europe, nineteen seventy six. Well, everything came from somewhere. It I does, guess. Yeah. So, uh, you were also. Uh, involved with Phil Linnett very young. That's right. He'd yeah. been in a band called the Black Eagles. That's and right. had you seen them play? No, I'd never seen them play. What happened was I'd been in a soul band called the Updown Band. Which is, and our manager was Ted Carroll. Ted went down to manage Tin Lizzy and the Ace Records. He's five, to this day, he still has five different record labels. But at that time, 
he was just had to be working in the bank, but his attitude hadn't changed that much. But Ted was managing the Uptown Band. So we were playing the soul, you know, Sam and Dave, and I could do them all one after the other. I could do the whole song, you know, all the and But anyway, times were changing, you know. The flower power was coming in, there was nothing here. So I decided, I was, I was living in Cabral West. I had to get up every morning, get the bus into town as far as Trinity College, then get a bus to Foster Avenue where I had a job working on jams and jellies and shivers trying to keep myself going. Then that's come beside, back, uh, U, uh, beside UCD, that's Foster it. Avenue. Yeah. yeah, all the way down. Yeah. 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 Then come back to Trinity College and head, head out to Bally Brack to practice with the Uptown Band. Then finish practicing there, get the bus back into town, get the bus up to Bisbee Road, try and get sleep. Uh, so anyway, the last night I played with the Uptown Band, and still the, uh, was, they were moving from the soul into the flower power. And Larry Mooney, who was a manager, who became a great friend of mine after that night and before it, but that particular night, had spent most of the money on flowers. You know, we all heading for San Francisco, you know, it was Camp McKenzie, and this thing was coming in. And I had a heated discussion with him at the end of the night. Why he didn't go to Moore Street to buy the flowers instead of buying them for an extra X amount of money? So that was the end of my time in the uptown. Right. Band. Flower power, you know, that was, that was gone. So I said, I'm going to start this other band. And I. I'll get guys, you know, take it from there. So, an old Bridgman. So, I needed a singer. I had this idea. So, I thought the best person to go and see was a friend of mine called Dave Robinson, who ultimately went on to own Stiff Records. Mm. So, he would have been, if anybody looks at his catalogue, you won't believe it. But at that time, he was a photographer and he was also the manager of Sound City on the key there. So he said to me, I said, I'm looking for a singer. He said, there's a great guy, colour lad with the, uh, the Black Eagles. So I didn't, so what Dave said, I didn't need, I didn't even have to hear him or see him. Once, once Dave told me, it was like the hem of the garment, like I don't, you know, I know there's a miracle, so I just have to hold the hem of the garment type of thing. So I went, I found out where he was and I got a number for him. And I rang him. So I said, it's come out on the bus and it was just a coincidence that the bus went all the way from my house in Cabra West, all the way up the crumb and went over the seam and knocked on the door. I said, how are you getting on? So I come in and said, like, what, what do you like? What sort of stuff do you like? And he says, uh, Paul Simon, I'm in Ireland. So I forget about that. Then he says, uh, Nico on the velvet on the ground. So I said, oh, no. You know, so what about Jimi Hendrix? He says, yeah, well, so that's where we're going. I took one look at him. I didn't have to, you know, whether you like it or not. That's, you know. So I said, I'll see you tomorrow. They said, I'm going to come up and throw you out of the band. And were you impressed with how he looked? You oh, must have been impressed with Even me, then, did he have that huge... Well, as my ma beard. said, like, she thought he was, like, blessed, you know. Really? Yeah, because Harry Belafonte had Mary's boy child and all that, you know. And, he, and the way it works is, if you look like Quasimodo, he's no chance... But he looks like Harry Belafonte, a cross between Harry Belafonte and Sidney Potier, mm. who were the you know, biggest coloured lads at the time. And as my ma said, Martin de Paris was the word was the saint. <laughs> my ma came up with a saint. Because he asked me, Eddie Marston the same, where the holy waterfront is when you come knock on the door and your ma opens the door. Where's the holy water? So when your ma opens the door, you put your hand in the Holy water, you can get out of and bless yourself as make like, like what you're talking to, you know. <laughs> but he, he was good at all that sort of stuff, but he looked fantastic. Yeah. yeah. That's that's why we gave him the job. Never heard him singing. Just took one look at him and said, oh, gee, this the guy And is that kind of the way it is in bands? Because you hear, like, with the Sex Pistols and everything, that, uh, you know, Sid Vicious, he couldn't play, but he looked brilliant. But that was part of it. But I, I remember they used to put ads in the hurdled. The band's looking for guys. I'm just <laughs> sad one day. Long hair drags, looking for rhythm guitarist. Must have long hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look at God, the image was the image was the image. Oh, but it's a habit 
just going to make another adjustment. Is that better? Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. If something's free, why would you turn it down? I mean, a free haircut from a five-year-old. <laughs> oh, no. Or a free sample of onion paste. Oh. <clears throat> well, then, how about a free tour of your neighbour's new shed? Oh, sounds well. Mm. OK, look, they were bad examples. But how about a free eye test and free glasses from the 69-euro range of Specsavers with your PRSI? Well, that sounds like something to smile about. Book an appointment or find out more at specsavers.ie. You're hearing the sounds of a street in India. For Yotsna, a 65-year-old lady, sounds were all she had. She developed cataracts that in Ireland are easily treated. But because she couldn't see, she was abandoned by her family. People like Yotsna are the reason Specsavers support the Hope Foundation, an amazing charity who restored her sight. And when she could see again, they also found her place to live. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. So uh, Phil was in the band and he was singing and then there was an issue with his tonsils, isn't that right? Yeah, well, probably, like when he arrived, Bernard Shee was, was playing guitar with the band at the time who went on to become the top apprentice in Guinnesses. So he had to leave the band. But uh, once Bernard went, we, we, we heard about Gary and we got Gary in. But ultimately what happened with Phil then was... Uh, well, he wasn't auditioning, but the very first song he sang was Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix. And he had the Jim again, green sunglasses on, the little ones. Beautiful leather coat, like, and had put the boot polish under his eyes to uh, give it the, bit of the Elvis job. Mm. So he was always into that sort of thing. But then, everything moved very fast then. Like, you could, you, you could get off the ground in six months. Like there's bands together over here now. I don't know how they do. Fifteen years and they're still talking about taking off. It's only, it's only. Yeah. You know, they, I can't believe it. Like, but then if you didn't take off in six months, you'd start another band. Yeah. So I'd say to the boys, like, we'll we'll take off in six months. It's no problem. Here's all we have to do. And in no time, I'd say in a month we were probably the biggest band in Dublin, along with the Grannies, all on the strength. Of, the gigs were seven nights a week then. Where did you play at that? We played, Where were the big venues? We would play the scene, the Moulin Rouge, the apartment, the 72 club. Like there's gigs everywhere, you okay. know, seven nights a week. Clubs all stuffed with people. And like this is 1967, this is the start of the whole hmm. big group thing, as they used to call it. The Five Club in Harcourt Street. And we start running the gig there and we... Uh, we used to, you know, control freedom is our aim. It's all that sort of stuff, you know. We were very, you know, we had all the phrases and all together. But after six months, we were doing more soloing than singing. So, so Phil was standing there like, well, we had the 20-minute drum solo and the 20-minute bass solo and the 20-minute guitar solo. We're doing the blues. So we done this program like now on RTE. And Phil was singing Strawberry Fields Forever. And this lovely lady, Phyllis, tips him up a balloon and he's tipping the balloon and singing the strawberry fields forever which should have been psychedelic but he was badly off key and at this stage we're, get, we're very professional we know the difference so we checked to find out why his breathing wasn't great and it turns out that he had what looked like a golf ball down his throat but it was a tonsil but it was you know it was biggest sort of thing so his ma said that uh, Phyllis that she'd bring him back and get his get his tonsils fixed and he'd be grand but as soon as he went out the door, we, we thought we were the cream. You know, three-piece mm. heavy metal, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Eric Clapton, uh, Ginger Baker and Jack yeah, Bruce, yeah. And Jimmy Henning. So we had yeah. to let him go. So and the, how was he about that? About letting him go? Yeah. I'm very sad. I was sad to let him go. Don't forget it. I'd, I'd went, we'd went on a, a honeymoon with him. You got married and he we, went We got married, yeah, because like his ma, we'd no money and his ma owned a hotel in Wally Grange, Mossside. And there was a flu out that time called the Hong Kong flu. I remember as well as that. For any, she meets us at the airport. 
And she said, we're going to Mozart. She said, I heard you're, remember the words she used, you're an out-of-sight bass player. I said, yeah, I'm sure I am. She says, uh, we have all kinds of bands and strippers and everybody staying in this hotel. And there's a band, the bass player has the Hong Kong flu. Would you be able to stand in with them? I told him you would. I said, yeah, what are they called? He says, they're called the Ivy League. I said, they have a couple of hits, you know. Uh, tossing and torn, and that's why I'm crying. So, yeah, so I knew that. So this is on your honeymoon, yeah. You were playing with the so Ivy I, League, yeah, but the whole twice a night for the seven nights, you know. And Phil how did your missus? She's out the front uh, dancing with Phil all day, call it up. Okay, so anyway, well, I let him go. This is me, but this is one of my best pals of all time. But I'm a young guy, and there's a kind of a, an arrogance that comes with ignorance, yeah. you know, where anybody has to be shafted. They're getting, in the, they're getting in the way of your quest for knowledge, spiritual enlightenment, and plenty of money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I called them outside. And this is true, Gary. I know it sounds very weird, but it wouldn't be five yards from my statue. Or down in the, the, the Brussels. Near Brussels, yeah. yeah. It's a different name at that particular time. And uh, up we went. We're talking, leaning against the car. I told him I'd have to let him go, but I guaranteed him that I teach him how to play the bass and if he'd done everything I asked him for six weeks he'd be able to join a band that, that's why we done it so even though I fired him the following day he was up in my house and again up in Capital West I'm showing him how to play we're still the best of ours but he has to go because I have to get on with my quest for knowledge spiritual life and, and money <laughs> and a swimming pool and a small <laughs> island in the Pacific as I say yeah <laughs> yeah well you know you, do, you would shaft anybody really at that time like it's just yeah. very single minded <laughs> and you did uh, yeah. teach uh, he, I thought man he, he done exactly he, he practiced day and night he'd come up to me we'd go for a couple of hours he'd go for wherever a flat he was staying on the apartment or wherever he was and uh kept going and every day he'd improved and in no time he's ready to play then he meets lots of people but ultimately within the space of a couple of months he met Eric Bell Brian Downey he always played her in the Black Eagles where he went to Lizzie that was it and if I'd have known he was going to be bigger than me it would have came as a novel shock for the system at that particular time um, they had a hit then in 71 with but no uh, it was 73 it was 73 sorry yeah, we before hit, we... they got going with the whiskey and jar around that time and were yeah. you were you surprised by that or I was yeah well yeah really yeah I was I, I first of all I thought the guys that came out whiskey in the jar is we all thought it was terrible and we're all still playing it you know it's still the only thing that's nearly as big as it is my version of the fields of Atten mm. and I, I I'm still playing that but if I had an option I wouldn't be playing either of them you know but that's the way life but on whiskey in the jar there's no bass you didn't even bother playing the bass. You won't find a record anywhere in the world that hasn't got a bass on it, except whiskey in the jar. There's no bass, you know. So really? Yeah. Never put the bass on it. Didn't. Know Couldn't that. think about in the play, you know. Which that's because you shouldn't have played anything. Just the one note thing would have done the job. But I, I taught him a more intricate way of playing to get to the top. But what that needed was a guy out of a say straight ahead band. One note, which which they do now, all the bands, ACDC, status quo, the killers. It's one note bass, dum, 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 a yeah. root note bass. Yeah, say. well, that that would have done on the, the Lizzie thing, but there's no bass at all on it. Okay, so I didn't think I had snowballs, chance in hell. Next thing, there she was on the charts, couldn't believe it. After all the practicing and the playing and the Dave Clark vibe, I know the Dave Brubeck, he was more Dave Clark vibe. That's why I said to him, I'm Dave Brubeck, that's more Dave Clark vibe, and then. Uh, what happened to Jimmy Hendrix? The cream, <laughs> but anyway, they got what, back to all that. And yeah. what happened to Skid Row? Well, once Gary Moore left, Gary reckoned that uh, we were getting too far away from the blues. That's what he said, and it is true. And I, I, so what I say to people is, if you listen to that love story, that's the one that broke the band up, and Gary's actually singing it. But I wrote it, and if you listen to it. That was the beginning at the end of the band because where we were going then was miles away from what was at that making us very successful. Right, Tash, we might as well get more into it instead of just playing them. The guy just wanted to play the blues, nothing else. And mm. he was right. You know, he was good. That, that's what he's done great. Like, 
And so he, he and left. He, he went and he joined Lizzie. Oh, well, no, he didn't. It was a good while before he got to Lizzie now. Oh, I know, yeah, but he did. And ultimately, he went there, yeah. But he, I think he started with John Heisman and a few different people. Mm. Then he, Sharon Osborne's father was managing for a while, trying, trying to turn him into a kind of a heavy metal thing, which really, he hadn't got a heavy metal vocal. And he didn't really play a heavy metal guitar. It's heavy blues, but it's slightly different from the Ingvi Malmsteen and all these Germans and all this European metal. It's slightly different. And what Lizzie was doing was kind of not as good, but based on the Allman Brothers. So Lizzie, I told Philip, we were at been playing with the Allman Brothers in the East Town Theatre in Michigan. Iggy and the Stooges was opening the show. And uh, I said to Philo, like, if you run into any trouble, get two guitar players and go for this Allman Brothers. It's the way to do it. I might even do it myself. I was talking about it after hearing them. There's a really good way of doing it. The three pieces, kind of. Everybody has to play full tilt all the time. But in the Allman Brothers, because they're two drummers and two guitar players, you can bring it down and bring it up. The dynamics are great. So next thing I know... He says, yeah, I'm going to go for the two guitar players. And it's based on an Allman Brothers, if you look, the Allman Brothers. And uh, Lizzie came out of that kind of... And uh, took out that. It was the two guitars. When Eric was there, it was a great sound. It was a three-piece. And uh, they'd done a lot of great numbers. Just look what the wind just blew in. Black Boys on the corner. The Rocker, which was a great, mm. great yeah. number. And Phil had found his way there, but he realised that. The same way as he realised when he was coming to the end of Lizzie, that it's ran its course and he wanted to do something else again. He left and he tried to do the thing with Grand Slam and it didn't work. But what you have to do, when you're going really well, you have to stay with it. And ultimately, I don't care whether you have Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Paul McCartney, they don't want any new albums. They have all the albums they need belong to you. Even though you have to bring a new album out to get the impression that's where you're doing. But they don't want to hear anything. All they want to hear is th these songs that Lizzie had. He didn't have to do anything else, only them for the rest of the band and the odd number now and again. Bruce Springsteen the same. They only want Paul McCartney, Hey Jude, Get Back. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. Once you're established by Jovi, they want it. So Phil wanted to get out of that. And go on another program, and no, you've no, you've really no chance, you know. And that's how that wound up where he wound up. Well, know? when you say no chance, I mean, Finn Lizzy had a top twenty hit, and the boys are back in town yeah. in the states in the mid seventies, didn't they? It, it was more than it. They were going to, they could have cracked it in America. Yeah, what happened? Well, the, the the lad that did, he was a very good guitar player, Young Robinson, as we used to go. Brian him. Robertson, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then he got his hand slashed in an argument in a pub. Gary got his face slashed in an argument in a nightclub, you know. And they couldn't go. And that was it then, because it's another two or three years before you can... So they couldn't go because his hand was... So they never really... They fell out with him then, they never fell back in, you know. <laughs> So if they'd gone to America, if Brian Robertson hadn't got his hand slashed and they'd gone, do you think they would have broken ah, America? The, well, all the boys were saying they would have. Like, you, If you've seen the film there, which was only just lately, you see the guys from Metallica, Bon Jovi, they all played the boys are back in town when they come to Ireland. So yeah. the boys are back in town, funny enough, wouldn't be the, the best. But it's the best known. And then Whiskey in the Jar, Phil didn't want to play at all. And... Eric didn't want to play. None of us wanted to play. And we're a slave to that now, you know. We're a slave to whatever is successful. And that's what we do. And it is, it's not always the best number in the set, but it's the number that everybody wants because it's most accessible. Did yeah. you, you remain a mentor to Phil as he, as he progressed throughout his career? Were you well, still friendly with I, him? I, I did till they got to the stage where he kind of, he wouldn't talk to me because like I'd, we asked him to do something he didn't want to do, you know. Yeah. He wasn't great. He wasn't at his best. Uh, and some people say about, I don't know, I've seen documentaries about, you know, the Live Aid and all that. That, yeah. if, you know, if Phil had been asked to do Live Aid, that he, mm. he would have cleaned up whatever. Do you think that's true? Well, if he, had, if, he would, if he had been on it, he would have been as big as anybody, you know, like 
Should you, like, don't forget at that particular time the Queen wasn't even getting any gigs. They were trying to get back together again and get organised. And they went on. And there was the most organised going on there. Freddie Mac, he didn't know what he wanted to do or not. Like he was only getting the waste of four million on, the, on himself where the boys put the money into him, the record company, hoping that he'd leave Queen. Then Queen, he invited himself back into Queen. Well, as somebody said, they used their set to take off again. Is that really what happened? Yeah. With Queen at that stage? Sure, Queen would... would sure, Freddie Mercury had left Queen. He had making an album on his own. He'd done a, hurt the boys very badly. You know, a couple of million up front to do it. And they didn't... They When he wanted to come back in, he was talking about this gig, a few other things. He was, you know, and that's... Like, the Lizzie film and the Queen film... They're not far off, but there was a lot of other things that went on, you know, that probably more interesting, but probably wouldn't be great for anything, you know. Did you know that Phil was suffering in his, you know, with, with his problems? Were oh, you aware of that? Yeah, or? Much in that and that's the whole problem. Yeah. You know, like, you, like as Gary Moore said, and it's true, no matter what you, no matter when you're talking to me, I still, <laughs> I still think I'm the leader of the band. <laughs> like I said, like whatever I'm told, you still taught me like you're the leader of the band, and uh, yeah, well, that's true. You know, I'm getting said that's all right. You know. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. You'd know, if I was starting again now, I'd know exactly how to take off. I'd know exactly what to be doing. But what would you be doing? You'd probably be somewhere between the rap. You'd be rapping a bit. As a matter of fact, the next, things, the next couple of things I'm going to do I'm combining rap, but not like Detroit rap. I'll be doing what I call intellectual rap. I'll be rapping like Beckham and Bowman to whatever. Wittgenstein. Say like with the alphabet thing. But some people are born lucky. Some people are born blessed. I was close to the God, the devil, like the X-Force. I was never in any distress. The true saying knows that she, he is definitely not one that would be. That's a mortals have a tendency to turn me morals into God. So that's why it interests me. You can be under the weather over the moon. I can get... Okay, so because you are... I was going to approach this later, but yeah. seeing you've, you've gone into it, let's talk. You are quite a spiritual man. You do seem to be on a, a bit of a... Not just for the money, but for, for, the, for spirituality. So th- that to me almost sounds like a cross between... Rap and a kind of almost incantation. It's almost like well, a, it, that's the type of, a prayer I, to I, self. I'd be interested in. Uh, I was inter- I was always interested in any kind of mysticism, you know. And one of my favorite books was F. C. Happel, the history of, you know, mysticism, an anthology of mysticism. And I was always interested in. Like most people, you'd be interested in the Buddhist monks. Till you find out that's a, that's a handy number. Like all you have to do is meditate all day and shave your eyes every so often. <laughs> and then the you know the, the, the Dalai Lama, like those guys didn't have a mortgage or you know didn't have to worry about this that or the other. Like they really want to you know that's meditate through it. Great, I've never heard but, but Buddhist monks referred to as a handy number. <laughs> it's no, funny. You, you don't you don't actually do anything except sit around all day meditate and get your bowl go out and you know like what are you meditating for? You know. And then you have the Dalai Lama. I'm a big fan of his, but as I said before, he wears a watch because he doesn't know what time it is. So at one time, I thought the boys knew and the girls knew what time it was and what was happening. But a lot of the time, people, the cop out, basically. They go somewhere where they've 
no mortgage, they've no family. They don't have to worry about anything. They get up at four o'clock every day. Like the Jesuits have to get up every morning and do the spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius for an hour and a half. Every Jesuit anywhere in the world. There was a Jesuit called William Johnston who had a book out and he used to live in Japan. He lived in Japan called Zen Christianism. And he was he got involved in Zen and Christianity and how to put both things together. And I found all of that very easy, but it was always done by monks, lads who didn't have a mortgage, which is the best way of putting it. I didn't have to worry about the little the price of the way they're going at the moment or the price of juice. Or the, so it's easy enough. You're meditating all day. And they have the symbolism with the Buddhists, where the Buddhists usually put food down in front of his statue. And he, he wasn't that, he, would, he, he wouldn't be as slim as the rest of the lads. And he lived to be 81 or 2 or 3, I'm not too sure. But there's loads of lads at different times. Buddha wasn't as slim. He wasn't that slim. Well, he apparently came from a fairly well-off family and just lived well, under it, a tree. It, it, like all type, all forms of meditation, there's a certain amount of intellectualism involved in it. It's not for the... There's not, you know, you find the odd working class guy who was listening to Cove there. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, this guy on the road who was listening to obsolete pieces, he'd go. But not everybody in Cabral West or Fingless would be that interested in, you know, doing the Lotus position for four hours and breathing and going, mm, and some guy going on a kind of a symbol. Well, you were. You're not focusing on the... Although there's plenty the, of people who are willing to pay for it. They are. And pay they, big they, money. They do. They go for the, the weekends and yeah. the this, that, and the... But the, basically, it's, it, yoga is great. It's a form of yoga, meditation. There was the transcendental meditation. And uh, that was very big here for the world. Was idea. it Tony Quinn bring some of that Tony stuff Tony Quinn in? was the biggest of all time. Mm. Tony Quinn. He would have started the key massage. He would have... He was the biggest. In my opinion... In relation to anything like that, Tony Quinn, he had his own newspaper when nobody had, Blueprint for Living. He had places all over Ireland where, the, where people who worked for him. But I, I completely disagree with the absent healing where you send in a photograph of the person belonged to you who's not well at 50 euros and they'll pray for you in there. That's, I, 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 think that, I think that's not right. No. The other stuff where you're giving, teaching people hypnosis or key massage or how to live a better way or eat, eat in a particular way which doesn't interest me at all you know good food is good for you but again you have to get over and again eating whatever you like just to know that the good food is good for you if you're eating good food all the time after a while it tastes the same <laughs> you have, it has to be a bit of sort of moderation but I, I don't like I don't like pain I don't like to have anybody having to pay anybody to pray for them I think that you know that doesn't make any sense and it happens that the whole evangelical thing in America is based on that. You yeah. send the money in and we'll get you right. And they're tax free. So just getting back to what you, when I just when I asked you what what would you do now? You said you'd know what to do now. I would, yeah. And you'd so you'd incorporate a little bit of your own version a of, little bit of rap and what else? And uh, it, it'll, it's always to do with drum beats, whatever it is. Mm. It's always dance. That's the listening. That's the dance. I'd always be where the, a bit of both, but mainly with the, the bass drum, bass, that sort of thing. That's still the, nothing has changed. You, you listen to Uptown Funk. Man, I've played that a million and one times. But you bring it back with a slightly different sound. And if the people are dead, you're influenced by them. If they're alive, you plagiarise them. But there's really nothing, <laughs> you know, there's nothing new. You did a great line about a legend. A legend is somebody who, who, who should be still be alive, but isn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, she's like the guy giving out traffic tic tickets. He's a legend now. Like everybody's a legend. And then there's legend among legends. Yeah, double uh, legends. Yeah, there's even all of that. So it's, it's a word that's bandied around. Yeah. Traffic warrants used to each other. You know, you're doing your man down there. Great. And the clamp was a legend. You know. he, cla uh, he clamped 400 you know, cars in you know, one your, day. Your man is clamping like in the 
car park in the hospital where somebody's going in for five minutes to see somebody uh, who's dying and they should have their own awards clampers of the year <laughs> <laughs> it's the finest piece of clamping I've ever seen well you know clamp loiters of okay life. so with the young brush shields what would you what, what, how would you present yourself N- starting off now yes yeah, starting off now it's all about the same thing still applies that it always did confidence in what you're doing and to be able to explain what you're doing and then do it and be of your time there's a time when you're fashionable and I'm looking at the eagles and I know there's like three or four grandfathers there and you grow the hair for as long as you can like for that, for that type of thing and if you can't you think of something else but then you have to be stylish so the, the most important thing then is you have to dress in a particular way you have to have the you have to look, you have to be fashionable. So you get somebody that knows what fashionable is, make you look fashionable. We look terrific. If you look at Skid Row, fellow unbelievable, like talk about fashionable. Like, and we, you know, one week, we were, it was the flower bar. And then the next week, it was the buckskin jackets, the cowboy hats and the Indian feathers and we're trucking around the America and we're playing the, we're jamming and we're playing the heavy hard blues. Then it changes again, then, you know, it's Duran Duran and the suits and the shirts and the toys, then it's these pet shop boys, then it's the, you know, then the electronics come in and it's craft work and then the world is changing and you're here, there, there. But still, you, I, I've seen the drummer and the singer getting out of a car from Deep Purple to do a gig somewhere. And the boys, it could have been De Valera and Michael D, you know. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, at a certain stage, you're at a certain age, like, you get out of the car, you still Was it have David a, Coverdale, or? No, the, uh, Ian, Ian Gillian. Ian Gillian, Yeah, right? David, no, David's going around with White Snake. he's, his voice is not as good as it was, but it was incredible, but he starts the songs and lets the crowd take over, and I think that's professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> so you see Bon Jovi, and his, he's having terrible trouble with his voice, and he's lip syncing, and he's putting his hands up to his mouth, so nobody can see what he's doing, but everybody's watching it, on YouTube and all the boys are talking about him, saying it's his worst tour of all time. But he'll come back again, you know, he made make great records. But for Is some that people, what singers do when they're having difficulty? Yeah. They kind of cover sync. their mouth. Yeah, because they actually have the real voice coming through the PA, like the, like the drums. Even the, live? Yeah, but the reason that, that sort of uh, river dance took off, like the drums and the dancing were on the... A click track, basically. Yeah. You know, you'd be dancing now, but it's, as well as that, you'd have a great, unbelievable sound. Where you'd have, but all a lot of bands are doing the lip syncing. A lot of guys that wouldn't been doing it when they were younger. You know, that's the way it's gone now. You know, and that's because it's that's got to reach a certain standard. Not, and you can't like, when you get to a certain age, you can't hit the notes. Most people that have been that have been attacking them for a long time. At a certain stage, you can't attack it the same way. You know, what about somebody like Springsteen? He's getting there. He's still, he hasn't hasn't too many problems. You know, like he still sounds. You crazy. actually sound very like Bruce Springsteen unintentionally. But that's a, that's kind of a sound like that'd be his sound. We we'd be sort of using American accent. We we wouldn't we wouldn't use a Dublin accent. We wouldn't have. They wouldn't have the heavy blues. The, the Dublin accent didn't lend itself to it. Even though <laughs> now and again I do what would happen to Brendan. Brendan Bean was singing the L Triangle with the Blues Band, yeah. which was, and I can see how it could happen. <laughs> what would that be like, do you think? Yeah, well, you'd have the slide for the start, you know, and you'd be hitting it. Slide guitar. Yeah, giving it, yeah. The, giving it yeah. the blues thing, you know. And yeah, you have to get that sort of, you know. <laughs> Jingle! All of that. All alone! You know, I'm giving it a bit of the blues. Of the wrong. A bit of Ronnie Drew, just that. That's brilliant. Yeah, thanks. You'd be doing it like that, sort of, you know. Um, I sang, I played Brennan B and actually in something, so no, I have no sung that song. Give us a bit of a day. No. Give us a bit of The captain's on the cakes. At the old triangle. Oh, that's it, that's it, yeah. When jingle jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. Dead, Gary, I tell you, there's a living in this for you now. I'm telling you now, I'm talking to you here now. You have shed enlightenment on your own being 
Well, just doing that there now, I'm telling you, for the rest of your life, you could make a living doing a particular thing. Should have gone to Specsavers. That's what the ads tell you. But for some people in India, it's not that simple. Imagine having no eye tests or glasses. You couldn't work, so you could lose your home. I'm Lisa from Specsavers, and I'm proud to help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Specsavers arranged for me and my colleagues to go there and do eye tests. To date, we've given out over 11,000 pairs of glasses. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. Since she got her free hearing aids with her PRSI at Specsavers, Roisin is a changed woman. Music has never sounded better, and that makes her dance. And dance, and dance. Her singing, though, yeah, well... Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. What's the best site in India? The Taj Mahal, the Golden Temple? For Rintwa, it's his market stall. Some years ago, he lost his sight and then his job. I'm Lisa from Specsavers and we help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Rintwa was found to have cataracts. The charity performed surgery, which gave him his vision back. He regained confidence and returned to work. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. Does kind of a career in the arts generally, and particularly, you know, rock superstardom or any kind of superstardom, it doesn't necessarily have the greatest mental uh, health impacts upon people, does it? How would you withstand that, do you think? Well, the, the, I think the biggest problem is you would think that if you've done something to the best of your ability, that should be enough to get you work. But it doesn't work like that at all. Far from it. You know, as the guy says, it's like, it's who you drink with, you know, or who you... you know, like, it's really, there's a lot more to it. If you have a good personality, you might be great, but you might get a lot more work because people like working with you. And ultimately, you know, I knew this lad that was, you know, going for voice lessons to become a tenor and they teach you how to deal with somebody not liking you <laughs> you might not get the job here's what you do don't worry about it if you don't get it you know what I mean like being torn down for a part yeah you're actually which is actually what the job is well you know. <laughs> so really and truly the, you know it's a lot of the time there's a very big difference between the biggest and the best. Yeah. And the biggest might, might be, you know, like when Elvis came along, tens of thousands of great musicians lost their jobs overnight. The big, all the big bands, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, all these guys were practicing day and night, traveling on trains. Next thing you know, three chords and that's all right, mama. And next thing you know, the jazz musician is the guy playing in the pub somewhere between the toilet and the back door <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> you know, and I know that from my experience. You know, yeah, but, well, so yeah. when music comes along, Gary, it's not always the best. You know, you couldn't say that the Sex Pistols could play and they didn't want to play because that's not what it was about at that stage. Then the Stones came along. Had they got longer hair than the Beatles? That's all people were interested in. And they're saying, well, the, 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 the stones are more anti-establishment. They tell the police to F off and they take drugs. You know, people are this is the way to go. And again, what's fashionable, like, do you want to spend your whole life waiting for Godot and getting the script right and the nuances exactly right into a mini... Or... or that, that whole Samuel Beckett thing where it became... You know, the, the world changes... And you can go back to Shakespeare. They were still teaching them how to choose, you know, certain parts of England, but they get a part in the film. And then these guys come along, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the big strong lads, and they're not acting at all. And as Tony Curtis said, he understands the castle of my father, you know. Mm. <laughs> and then you, you, sometimes you get the gig because you look well, you know. Well, looking well does seem to be very much part of it. Now, looking listen... Uh, we've only got a certain amount of time. There are one or two other things I want to ask, ask you about. Very briefly, Skid Row, there is an American Skid Row. Oh, yeah, well, that's uh, who, so who, point. Uh, is it, though? Did, did you go on, 
and John Bon Jovi owns the rights to some of their well, here, here, here's, here's the way it works I'm going to make this very quick when Bon Jovi were getting off the ground when they were starting out they went down before Kiss so when Bon Jovi goes on before Kiss Kiss can ask them for a certain amount of money plus part of their music publishing which is what happened Bon Jovi had a friend of his who had a band that didn't take off even though they put a lot of money into them so he decided to get a new name and a new singer and put them on before us and we'll get them off the ground so he rang Gary Moore and asked Gary could he use the name Skid Row and Gary said it was nothing got to do with him he was to ring me so he never rang me so to me that's a lack of respect mm. and that will come back that, 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 that will arrive at some stage, somewhere. I'll arrive on American television and I'll say, there's a lack of respect there. And I'll mention Bon Jovi. Did you that have there. a YouTube message? I did, you. yeah. And what, did you respond, no? The strangest thing was the guy who got fired out of the band, Sebastian Back, who was on the, this, the uh, Skid Row, American Skid Row, that sold the 30 million, he contacted me. And funny enough, he was only talking to me on the phone there a couple of weeks ago. He wants to come and see me in Ireland around Christmas when his band is on tour. He wants me to come down and play with him, you know. And this is to do with the Skid Row connection. But ultimately, I want to get back to America, which funny enough, I might be doing from the sprinting rather than the playing, which is a different discussion. And I might wind up on a particular running program or a fitness program and mention Bon Jovi and the lack of respect starting from there but I will be doing it the next time I'm on the late late you know okay so so you you feel unfinished business there all, all, no all I'm asking for is an apology it's a lack of respect apologise you, you decided that because Noel Bridgman and myself weren't in the band that we weren't, weren't worth talking to even though I'd written 99% of the stuff, there would have been no skid row without the material. But Gary Moore put the flesh and the bones along with Noel and myself. But all in all, he's a full-time professional musician, so am I. There's a lack of respect there. Now, far be it from me to come along and say, he's lip-syncing, you know? I wouldn't lower myself, even though he is. <laughs> but, you know... If I went up on YouTube, which I'm not far off doing at the moment because there's so many up there talking about the fact that he's lip-syncing and mentioned that he wasn't lip-syncing when he shafted at me back in the Noel Bridgman and such and such a time. But when the time is right, that, that, will, that will re-emerge. And is there, like, obviously there is an issue uh, out, of, out of respect, as you say, of the fact that, there, that he's involved in a band well, that the, has got the same name. Is yeah, there... The, the irony was, Gary, that the band, the American band, fell out with him and sued him. Because he and Richie Sambora and Doc McGee, the manager of Bon Jovi, for letting the lads on before them, took half of the music publishing. So when the time came when the lads were making their money, they wanted the music publishing back. And Bon Jovi refused to give it to them. Richie Sambora... He gave them back that music publishing. So that's kind of, that's wasteland now. So, but having said that, Bon Jovi and myself, it's unfinished business. And if I'm the fastest sprinter with double hips replacement in the world and I'm on talking to anybody, what keeps me going? Waiting on the, like waiting on Godot and waiting on Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> that is some link into what I'm about to ask you, which is about you are planning on being the fastest man alive. Yeah, uh, on a, over, over 100 meters, over 100 meters, over 75, yeah. with double hip replacement in the world. <laughs> Not in and Ireland, I, in the world. And are you close to? Well, the they, they can't find anybody that can any, actually sprint over 75 that had double hip replacement. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be going, I'll be going now. I'll be going out in the next couple of weeks and I'm hoping to be roughly two seconds outside the world record for the guys who have their own hips. You know, I'm 
76 years old, but my hips are only 12 months. But the guys who have their own <laughs> hips, which are 75 years old, their record is around 14, 14 and a half seconds. I'm hoping to do it in 16 seconds, which would put me second and a half, maybe two seconds outside the world record. Wow. You know. Because you were growing up quite athletic lad and you played I, football I'd be, I'd be, for, for Bose. I'd be fast enough. I played for Bose in 64 for a, a few weeks till they, you know, you didn't get paid then. And I was getting paid like uh, not playing with Rose Tynan, which is another story. And uh, they were, that was your first group. Yeah, 15, 15 shillings, which is a lot of money in 1964. Oh, yeah. Early, and uh, so that was the end of my football career. Four weeks. Off I went. What position did you play in both? Inside left, right footed, inside left. So you were a quick, creative, nippy, well, skillful yeah, player? No, yeah, the job was for scoring goals. That's all I done. I didn't do anything else. Oh, really? No, that's it. So, as I tell people, would you have been a good player, great player, uh, Bruce? I reckon good, good is not in my vocabulary. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to do anything, I'd have to get to England and I'd have to wind up playing for the Republic of Ireland. So two of my brothers played for were the Public of Ireland Youth Internationals. Mm. And they reckon I might have been myself if I hadn't been out on the road all night the day before the trials. But, so, you know, I scored goals. And that's, that's, it's, it's, that sort of, it's all about confidence. And it's the type of confidence that you can't learn. You can learn how to be a better footballer. But mm. the thing of being in the right place at the right time haven't done very little for 89 minutes. That's the key to being a great striver. When you're missing by most of the match. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, you've got to be cunning to be a good striker. You've got to be clever. That's kind of, instinct is the best. Instinct. Yeah. Instinct is the kind of, you can teach it, but at the same time, if you've got it, it's, it's, it's something that you, the guys have it or they, or they haven't, but the, the real great players, an awful lot of it is instinct. They just don't do a lot of running around. They just. Who know. did you admire as a player? I mean, who are your favourites? Well, funny enough, we were all brought up on the myth of the late Liam Whelan, who died in the Munich air disaster. Mm. We, were, we went to the same school as him. And all we ever wanted to do was uh, get to Manchester United, and same as Johnny Giles. How did you get there, Johnny? What route did you think? <coughs> Uh, I asked Jazzy um, about Matt Busby when I was, he goes, hey, I didn't like McGarry. It was that simple. Didn't like McGarry. <laughs> when, when, when John, John doesn't mince his words, he doesn't oh, waste sorry. words. I had the unbelievable privilege of, of talking to him about football. And when I say talking to him, he talks about football, you listen. Yeah. But that's just to be able to, you know, I sometimes describe to my kids, you know, and they say, well, what, do you, what do you actually work at? What do you do? Mm. And uh, one day I was outside the, the, I was thinking about this, I was outside the, the canteen in RT and I met Johnny Giles and I was talking to him for 40 minutes about football. Mm. And as I do a job where I can bump into John Giles and talk to him about football, <laughs> uh, it's, he's fascinating. Have you spoken to him? Uh, not for a good while, but I would, I would have spoken to him a few times. You, you know. also, by the way, uh, spent I'm sorry, a lot. Sorry, Gary. I was at the first game he ever played for Ireland. I always tell him that. And I remember the goal. I, I tell him how he, I can tell him how he scored the goal. I was behind the goal. I could, I could still see it. So you were one of the people who actually was behind the goal. Oh yeah, I, I, can, I, I can tell him exactly. You know, oh, the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper should have saved it for a start. It wasn't that far away. Man. It was at a height. But Johnny, there's just a slight turn on it, and it deceived the goalkeeper. But at that time, Bunny Fulham was the only one bending the ball in the League of Ireland. Well, what, what you know, Beckham might not to be known, but Bunny, Bunny was doing it because he, he had the steel toe caps, the what they were called the top, the Tom Finney super boot, and Bunny played right full for uh, Tom Condra. He was in charge of me when I was thirteen, which is a different story again. But uh, I can remember Johnny's distinctly it's in my mind's eye. You know, I can remember Johnny how he moved to hit it and the badly marked in the middle, almost in the middle of the park. I remember it really well, and we thought. Just the irony was that around that time, most Irish footballers were the same height as myself and Johnny, you know, five six, five seven. Then the world changed, and everywhere you go now, it's six foot two. Yeah. But at one time, it was a, a complete Dublin game, and the average height in Dublin around that time would be, you know, five four, five five, five six, five seven. So everybody that I played with was the same height as myself. Mm -hmm. 
And then I stopped growing. I was 14. I noticed the boys were all getting slightly taller. And I went out one day to try it. The first day I went out to Bowes, they wanted to try me out for temperament. That's the word I hadn't heard it before. And they had this guy marking me called Billy Brown. And he was six foot, two or three. And I never got a kick at the ball for the whole time I played against him, you know. And that was my first lesson that uh, I had to... It's not as handy as it used to be, you know, I have to move around a bit, that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, it's... It's a great day, you know, it was, it was a bit of psychology, I wasn't ready for it. I was too easy having a good time, now. Now, you have had a very successful career in Ireland, uh, and you're extremely well known. Would you like, would you have traded any of that? Because you have a very stable and happy life, it seems mm. to me, looking from the outside. Mm. And you seem to be, you know, spiritually enlightened well, and, and well, in, in I, I, tune I, with the yourself. Whole thing that it's, it's not so much spiritually, spiritually enlightenment. I just don't let people who are say they're spiritual intimidate me. Not that they would do it in a vindictive way, mm. but I don't see. I, you know, there's a very thin line between being humble, ubiquitous, and copping out. And there's some real nice people who go all around the world helping other people all the time. And what the Jesuits called contemplatives in action. I'm very interested in spiritual people who are out doing things mm. and walking with people. And that's the, that's the real thing. So, you, as I said before, like the messengers of goodwill, people who do whatever they can, not just to get inside your house, have a look around, but <laughs> actually, you know, generally said that. Helpful, and they would never see themselves, as I said. The true saint knows that she or he is definitely not one. Lesser mortals have a tendency to turn mere mortals into gods to make their own lives more interesting. Mm. Would, notwithstanding that, would you have, <laughs> would you have thrown any of that stuff for a taste of international rock superstardom? And how would that have been, and that, you that, think? Gary, it still hasn't occurred to me that... I'm at uh, when I get to seventy-seven, that I won't crack it. This is the uh, this is the whole key to everything I talk about. I'll reinvent myself this year, and I'll see where it takes me. But it hasn't occurred to me that I won't wind up on YouTube playing exceptionally well in different places because I know how good I am. So I don't really have a problem with being exceptionally good. I don't even have a problem with the fact that most people don't think I am. You know, they think I'm a, what I'm talking about, the average person thinks I'm a comedian. I don't know where this came from. Must have been the funny Friday. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, you are a very funny man, though. You are naturally funny. I, I have a, sort of uh, a, a sense uh, of humor, but I yeah. don't know any jokes. And I can't do any voices. If I could do the voices you're doing, I'd be the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> if I could do what you're doing. I, where I, does all this confidence come from? Because a lot of Irish people of your generation and mine didn't grow up with this sense of confidence. You, you, you don't grow up with the sense of confidence. You, you develop it as you become good at things. When I, when I became like around seven or eight and found I could play football, I got, I got confident. And then when I found I could play the guitar, I got confident. And when I could play it well, I got very confident. So all my confidence was in relation to what I was improving at. And then there's the type of confidence that it's like using the word compensation. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, confidence, you need more confidence. He needs more confidence. He needs more confidence. When it gets to the stage where you don't think in terms of confidence, you just think in terms of this is the way I am. That's real confidence, which is a slightly different thing. Mm. You don't have to. It's nothing got to do with ego. It's kind of self-acceptance. It, it is like, it, it doesn't mean anything other than you're capable of doing anything you want to do. That doesn't mean you get the opportunity to do it. But that doesn't matter because you can do it if the opportunity turns up. And that's really my attitude to everything. If it turns up, grand, if it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I have no problem doing it. And when I get to 77 in October, it, wouldn't, it, still, it hasn't occurred to me that I still can't go play somewhere. And somebody says, yes, this is as good as it was in 1967, 1971. And I know what it is, so I don't really have any sort of... 
you know, where you go, I'll just take it out and I'll just play it for you now. Chase, that's great, lovely. No, I've done that. I'm going for a walk. You know, that's it. I went out in Croke Park. 82,000 people at half time. The international rules. I did the first word of the fields of Baton Rouge. I'm not going to do anything else and I go home then. Have me dinner, watch the telly. Now, somebody will be looking down saying, yes, what, what I wouldn't give to be out there. Singing the field. You were playing half time in pre match entertainment at the international rules. 82,000. At Croke Park. I come out and I go, boy, alone be. I don't have to do anymore. Walking around, nodding to people. And you can see there's at least 72,000 people that love to be doing it. And I enjoyed it, and it's great. I enjoyed every second. It's lovely. Like the come down, I find the come down from some gigs, like I have to. And I do drink too much. No, I don't. I don't get high enough to come down. I enjoyed myself going out. I said, I go home then, even eat me dinner. You know, like I go home and watch the telly. I don't get high playing the full houses at all. I don't get high people because I know that unless you play as well as I do, you haven't got a clue what I'm playing. So a lot of the time, the, the reason the people are enjoying themselves might have nothing to do with what I'm playing. But the way I'm playing it, mm. and once that occurs to you that everything is a bit like that, you know, things are not going well, you're telling a few jokes. So you start deafening and blinding. So people will start laughing, you know. Like years ago, you wouldn't do, but now it's, you can hear guys, and you know, they run out of steam, they start deafening and blinding because that'll get them back in. Mm. You hear the nervous laughter in the crowd, sort of thing. And the, the problem with comedy is if they're not laughing, like, Man, you're in big trouble. And when they laugh a lot, and you have a, you know, they have a, you have a, a great night. You wonder why can I not do that every time I go out there? And you find that comedians all over the world have get a little bit down on themselves. She and he, mm. because like whatever kind of adrenaline uh, humor pumps into the person who's telling the gags. Ultimately, you know, the quest for knowledge and spiritual alignment <laughs> doesn't start at 12 o'clock in the bar and whatever it is, but it's just a matter of, jeez, I don't want to be myself now again after I'm after doing all that. I don't have to go back to being myself, but that's the, that's the self that is the real self. The, the one at the end of the gig, when everybody's gone home, you're carrying the gear out. And you're wondering is the chip fan open outside the leggy Kelly in, you know. <laughs> it's freezing cold and the road is damp and the ice is there and you're sitting there and you, you know all these things. You know that the Jesuits have to get up a pop over into the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius. And you realise like that. A little bit more to everything. But I'm not gonna let it bother me now, you know, you just take it from there. So you find your own sort of way of dealing with whatever it is that kind of haunt you. Uh, well, listen, I'd love to talk to you all day, Brush. Unfortunately, we're running out of time okay, for the achievement. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you, uh, and thanks for, for for coming on the podcast. I don't know, I'm know, very I'm interesting men. Well, we, we'll talk again, Gary. That's okay. all I'm saying. No. You know, when I get to 77, I might be more interested than when I'm 76. <laughs> <laughs> Brush Shields, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>